Our second reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 26, 36 to 46, and it's to be found on page 1040. It's entitled Gethsemane. When Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look! The hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. My friends, um, firstly, thanks, Margaret, for reading God's word. Secondly, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we look at this solemn passage this morning, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will minister to our hearts, Lord, that we will be drawn to Christ today if we have not already done so, Lord. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word. I want to thank you, Lord, for the honor and privilege of ministering your word to your precious people. Help me to be faithful to you, to your text and to your precious people under our care. May you forgive me of all my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear friends, this morning, I want to look at the topic, the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, just this past week, I read an interesting article. It's from about a church uh, that doesn't meet doesn't mention God. Uh, This is the new church in the UK. Uh, It's organized by some British comedians. A coin with joyful song and with a congregation bent on leading their better lives, this London church is like any other except there's no mention of God. So you can see the musicians there. Britain's atheist church. Britain's atheist church is barely three months old but it already has more 
worshippers than can fit into its services. While more than 200 non-believers worldwide have contacted organizers to ask how they can set up their own branch. And one is due to open here in Australia next month. The Atheist Church. Officially named the Sunday Assembly. Their quirky monthly meetings combine music, speeches and moral pondering with large doses of humor. There's so much about church that has nothing to do with God. So they say, it's about meeting people. Well, it's quite interesting to know something else. The assembly met the, local, the approval of the local vicar, a guy by the name of Dave Tomlinson, who came from his church three kilometers away to see what his new rivals were up to. And this is what he said. The vicar. Being here, I felt there was as much of what I call God as there was in my own church. Hey? This is what I said. Everything we've said here would be completely at home in my church. I hope it grows and sustains. I hope it grows and sustains. The second Sunday assembly launches, and I got this as well, launches in the Scottish city of Glasgow the end of March, and an Australian branch will be opened in April. You see, the question is, why would this atheist group want to replicate a church without God mentioned? It's very easy, isn't it, for us to meet and feel the warmth of a social gathering. What's the difference, friends? We can all sit here and have some great music. We can all exchange warm welcomes to one another. Have a lovely, warm, fuzzy feeling and feel good about it and just go back. For we have met. Is that the case? Doesn't it do something when we meet together as people? What's the difference? There is a significant difference. And the text this morning spells that out in Matthew chapter 26, 36 to 46. And the most significant difference is the person of Jesus Christ. A church that does not mention Christ. A church that does not mention the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins. The church that does not mention the wrath of God for sin. The church that does not mention the coming judgment for sin is no church at all. It is just a gathering. And that's exactly what this group is. So we see the context here this morning, right? In Matthew chapter 26, that Jesus is at the end nearly of his earthly life and his ministry. The Passover, the Last Supper, and after the meal they sang a hymn and left for the Mount of Olives. And in the immediate chapters leading up to this prayer in the garden, Jesus begins to speak of his arrest. He begins by saying things like that he will be arrested, that he will be handed over, that he will be denied by Peter, that he will be betrayed, and that he will be killed. And so the cross is on the horizon, and Jesus is fast approaching his execution, and he speaks of it openly. And with great passion, 
and sort of a final outpouring. He begins preaching on sin and judgment and heaven and hell and the kingdom of God. In our text this morning, Matthew 26, 36 to 46, we are given an incredible, I say an incredible glimpse into the emotional and physical state, particularly the emotional and the spiritual state of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Gethsemane was a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. They often met in this garden, and John refers to it in his gospel. In John chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This was probably a grove of olive trees, and Gethsemane means oil press. What we see in the garden is absolutely, it's absolutely unthinkable. I want us to draw our attention this morning to this passage, because what we see here is the most astonishing aspects of the life of our Savior. Quite amazing. I say it is unthinkable because what we see here is the Son of God, which is beyond our human comprehension. God himself in the flesh, going through intense inner emotional stress and turmoil. Jesus never before showed the least fear of man or pain. I haven't seen that in the text prior to this. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he displayed his emotions clearly. And what we see here is a crushing, a crushing agony that we have never, ever seen of Jesus up to this point. In fact, in fact, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson uh, says this. The Garden of Gethsemane, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has written lots of books, is a solid reformed theologian, a very biblically sound guy says, the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. It's the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Because here we see, friends, sorrow. Here we see isolation. Here we see the imminent betrayal of Jesus by one of his own. And the reality of the crucifixion, which was fast approaching. And sorrow upon sorrow. I mean, there are times in our own lives that we would have experienced sorrow, right? When we have lost a loved one, or perhaps when you heard news of uh, one of your family members having an uncurable cancer, or perhaps uh, something terrible has taken place to someone you knew, and you've experienced that sorrow. And sorrow brings with it despair and despondency, and it does not speak of hope. But Jesus will give us a, a permanent hope. I'll get to that later. You see, there is sorrow, there is isolation, betrayal, denial, and the crucifixion which was fast approaching. And this is what uh, the text tells us. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray and take him with him, Peter and two sons of Zebedee. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And Jesus, my dear friend, separates himself 
for most of his disciples going off to pray with the three men who are closest to him. And some theologians would speak of them as the inner circle of the leadership. You have the leadership of the twelve, but you have the inner three that Jesus took with him. Right? They were the closest to him. These three disciples, for example, were taken with him on special occasions. They were present at the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were present with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now they are invited to be with him here in the Garden of Gethsemane while he was praying. And a possible question that may come up in our minds this morning. Why would Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity itself, God in the flesh, be praying to his Father? Why would he do that if he is God? Have you ever asked that question? Is, is he praying to himself? You see, let me answer it this way. Surely he is God. Surely and certainly he is God. The answer is that while Jesus is God, he is also fully human. 100% God and 100% man. And the difference between him and us is this, that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The text we've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 in our morning services. right? And as a man we see that he submits to his father in prayer. And here in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times. The first in verse 39, going a little further, so he separates himself from Peter, James, and John. He fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I, not as I will, but as you will. The second time he prayed is in verse 42, again for the second time. He went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, may your will be done again. In verse 43, 44, again we have those words, leaving them behind, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And we see the state of his soul. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And Luke confirms, my dear friends, that Jesus was in such agony that we say this, that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And Jesus begins to experience an anguish that is so deep and so profound that it feels like death. And it's as like blood, uh, drops of blood. And commentators would call this particular condition, hermotitis, I think the condition is, in such an agony that it would move even to drops of blood. This is, the, this is not just physical agony. This is the spiritual agony that Christ is facing. And the prophet Isaiah wrote prophetically about Jesus when he said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted with grief. And though these words were descriptive of Jesus' entire life, we see them coming to a climax. I believe here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here he goes to a depth of sorrow and his emotions are clearly displayed because here begins the path to the cross. The path to the cross is paved with sorrow. 
It is paved with denial by Peter. It is paved with betrayal of one of his own. And there is abandonment, loneliness, and grief. No wonder Jesus said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the question for us this morning, friends, is what is this cup and what was in the cup? You see, in the Old Testament, the cup is often used as a metaphor for the wrath of God. I I trust we'll understand this this morning. You see, for example, we read about it in Psalm 75. I'll refer to that in a moment, the passage we read this morning. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Habakkuk chapter 2. In Psalm 75, verse 8, we have these words where the psalmist speaks of this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Foaming wine mixed. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, again commenting on this, about on the cup, he makes the following point. This cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath. Poured out against all sin. And we discover in scripture that it's intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. It is your cup and it is mine. And the cup that Jesus found so abhorrent to drink was a cup filled with the wrath of God for sin. This is the wrath of God against sin. Regardless of how small or insignificant our sin may be, all sin, friends, is an assault on the most holy God. Agreed? That's it. Right. All sin is an assault on the character of God. All sin is an assault on the holiness of God. All sin is an, is, is an assault on the very person of God who is holy and righteous and pure and awesome, the God of all majesty and splendor that is beyond human description. This is the great, that the scriptures speak of, the great Elohim God, the whole powerful God, the Elion God, the almighty God. This is no God that we can pat on the back and say, how are you going God? Are you keeping all right this morning? This is not the God that we would say to invite to our services. Oh Lord, we welcome you to our service this morning. No, 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 no. He is the Lord. He doesn't need an invitation to come here. <laughs> right? This is, this is the awesome God. The God that we have turned our backs to. The God that we have made him so small. The God that we say we don't need you, God. Because I am God. The selfishness of the human heart. You see, and it was God's wrath toward our sin. So serious, so serious. That Jesus saw in the cup that night. That caused him to be in such 
agony. And this cup was indeed connected with the crucifixion. And he would drink the cup of God's wrath. The wrath that we actually deserved. And the cup is the judgment of God against sin. And the theme of God's wrath, my dear friends, against sin runs throughout the the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, one theologian has stated that the number of references to God's wrath in the Old Testament, I haven't counted this, exceeds 580. And the Bible is filled with statements about the wrath of God. We see the examples of God's wrath. In the Old Testament, he brought the flood. There is wrath against the people at the Tower of Babel. His wrath against Sodom and Gomorrah. His wrath against the Egyptians. His wrath against his own people when they sinned against him. And we don't want to talk about these things, do we? Uh, Dr. Vern Poitras, fantastic theologian. Enjoy his readings. Superb, uh, uh, excellent theology. Right? Very hard some of his readings are to read. By saturated, with depth. You know, you want meat. When you read stuff, right? Are you going to grow as Christians, right? Are you growing as a Christian this morning? Then you're going to get the meat of God's word. Read good theological books. It's there. It will strengthen your soul. It will sharpen our theology. It will make us excited about Jesus. A word Poitras, he says, We repeatedly confront the danger of compromising the Christian faith in an effort to match the cultural norms of tolerance and civility. We are in danger of muting the note of judgment and wrath in the Christian message because that note is not only unpopular but not tolerated. (laughs) It's not a popular thing to speak about the wrath of God in our churches. Instead it is about come to Jesus and you'll be happy ever after. Come to Jesus and he will fill your wallets. Come to Jesus and he will prosper your business. Oh no, it's more than that, isn't it? And the church forgets to preach on the wrath of God. And the church forgets to preach on the judgment of God. And the church forgets to speak on the grace of God. We've lost it. It is unpopular to speak of the wrath of God and judgment in today's society. It is not the politically right thing to say in 2013. Surely we are a modern society. Surely we are modern families, aren't we? But God has not left us, my dear friends, to face that wrath by ourselves. Thank the Lord for that. In God's timing, his son Jesus knows what is going to take place at the cross. He will become your sin and he will become my sin by taking upon himself the wrath of God against sin. Do you see that? Wow. How amazing is that? Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to become sin. God made him who knew no sin the perfect Lamb of God to be sin. And Jesus would stand condemned 
in your place and mine. Jesus would suffer and die as our substitute. Jesus would drink the bitter cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus would be separated from the Father. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the petition that Jesus made to his Father in this prayer was this. My Father, very precious personal relationship within the Trinity. And he comes to the Father for strength. He comes to the Father for comfort. And Jesus receives no answer from the Father. That is quite astonishing as well. And there was silence. Silence. You see, when we pray, we want God to answer just like that, don't we? You become impatient with God sometimes. Been praying and praying and praying, nothing's happened. Sometimes silence. The father is silent at the plea of his son. And yet in his prayer he says, Notice, not as I will, but as you will. Let your will be done, Lord. You see, in our prayers, we need to be praying that, don't we? Lord, it's not my will. I am praying for this. But ultimately, it is, Lord, I pray it will be your will that will be done. I am praying for this request. I am pleading with you, God. But in the end, it is, you say, Lord, it is your will. Times that we go on our knees and we cry out in a situation. In, in ministry, you go on your knees many times in this, in this job and you cry out before God. Say, Lord, I just don't know where to go, where to turn to, what to do, do I cry out to you? That your will will be done. And he does it in his own way. Gives grace and strength, doesn't he? No answer from the Father, Silence. Your will be done. This is a prayer, my dear friends, of submission. Not my will, but yours. While Jesus was praying, the disciples in the meantime were sleeping. His request to them was that they would keep watch. They could not. He said to Peter, and he said to Peter, So, Peter, couldn't you watch with me? We've been studying the life of Peter, right? Even for an hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The kids talked this morning about temptation. You see, Getting tempted is not the sin. It's actually falling into temptation, as we heard this morning. That time Peter was tempted, and later on we know he fell into the temptation by denying Jesus. Peter was weak in his flesh. And then we have these friends, solemn moments. He came to the disciples, said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, the Bible tells us Judas agreed to betray Jesus. Judas, as we know, was one of his disciples. He agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The exact, this is incredible again, the exact sum that was prophesied by Zechariah 500 years prior to the event. Zechariah chapter 11. 
Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was prized by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And friends, this is what Judas in fact did. Matthew 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself and, and, throwing it down, the pieces of, of silver into the temple. Do you see that? Prophecy. Bible is not God's word. <laughs> then what is it? Right? 500 years ago, before the event took place. As I wrap up this message this morning, I want to briefly contrast some things today. I want to look at two gardens, two cups, and two destinies. There are two gardens, friends. This account here in the Garden of Gethsemane reminds me of another garden, right? And that is the Garden of Eden, the book of Genesis. In that garden and the Garden of Gethsemane, both gardens were crucial in the drama of God's redemption. Let me explain. We read of the events that took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 with the creation of Adam and Eve. The garden, the first garden was a paradise, was it not? Everything was perfect. Perfecto. Nothing to be done. No fights between Adam and Eve. Husband and wife living in Harmonious relationship. Sometimes you wonder, why did Adam go and sin? If only he hadn't done it. Imagine what our lives would have been like. That, that perfect garden. The garden was a paradise until Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned against him. And friends, it was in this garden, the first garden, that God announced the curse for sin and the promise of the Redeemer. You see, Genesis chapter 3.15 has been called by theologians as the proto-evangelium. That is, the first gospel was preached in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, about the humanity divided and the coming of the Savior. The two gardens. Come back to the Garden of Gethsemane. We see a suffering Savior to restore back that peace. There are also two cups. The cup of wrath that we have seen this morning is for our sin. This is the cup that Jesus drank by taking upon himself the wrath of God for our sins. But the Bible speaks of another cup. Another cup. A beautiful cup. The great cup. The psalm is Psalm 116, a messianic psalm. I will lift up the cup of salvation. Wow. 
and call on the name of the Lord. Right? It's amazing. There is a cup of wrath on the one hand that Jesus takes. And there is the cup of salvation. The cup of wrath, Jesus died for me. The cup of salvation, I'm saved by his grace. Did you see that? Tremendous. This is the cup of the joy of our salvation. Friends, this morning, if you're a Christian, do you have the joy of salvation in your heart? Do you? This is the joy of the cup of our salvation. It is a sermon by itself there. This cup is received by faith. This is the cup for all those who trust in Jesus. And then there are two destinies. Two destinies as well. We refer to Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. 9 to 11a. The context of the angels, that wonderful uh, book of Revelation. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, receives a mark on his forehead, on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And then, he will be tormented with fire, sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb of God. You see, I've read a lot of stuff on this thing about big, the, the, the theological debate. Is Jesus present in hell when judgment takes place? The answer, and Dr. Asi's prowess is a fantastic amount on this material. His view is yes. Yes. Because he will be executing judgment. What we see here is this, isn't it? There will be torment, fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of whom? The Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is now the risen and conquering King who will execute his judgment to perfection. And there will be no escape clause. You know, on our computer keyboards, we can hit the escape button, right? When some things don't go wrong, whack the button, bang, it's off. There's no escape clause in this. And a very, very serious, extremely serious and solemn thing. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and have no rest day or night. Do you see the need for you and myself as Christians and this church to be on mission for Jesus? Do you see this church, you and myself, to take evangelism seriously? You see, next term we will be sharing in our growth groups 
two ways to live, how to share the gospel, another tool. You see, we can sit here and say, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. What about that neighbor down the road? I'm, t- I'm talking to myself as well. What about my friends? What about those people that you catch up for a coffee on, Sunday, on, on Sundays, whatever day? What about those people you meet in your probis club? What about the senior citizens' luncheon that you get together with? What about those family occasions? You see, friends, if we don't take evangelism seriously, we might as well say, God, we are very satisfied. Thank you for the cup of salvation you've given to me. I am so happy. And I want to keep this to myself. It doesn't matter about the person next door. See, when you give your money and the tithes and offerings here, we don't get an increase in salary, John and myself, the more you give us, give the church. It is for gospel ministry. You see what I mean? We give sacrificially from our wallets because we are passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aren't we? Is that not the case? You see, when we do ministry in the church, when you become part of a growth group, it's about the gospel ministry, friends. And I, I don't know what else to do. I cry out to the Lord. I can say this to you. There are times that I bring this whole church family to the Lord. I say, Lord, where would you want us to be as a church congregation to reach Surrey Hills and beyond? I, am, I do not have all the answers. I just cry out to the Lord. Next week, we will distribute 1,000. The outreach team, Stephen Moody, will go out. You have an opportunity, 1,000 flyers. We just printed them. To go door knocking and invite people. Why? Why, why, why? Because of this. This is real judgment and hell. But God, but thank God that we have been rescued from his wrath and hell. This morning, we have good news. Good news, friends. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And the good news is that Jesus has taken the full fury of God's wrath upon himself. And to those who repent of their sin, turn to Jesus, they're assured of eternal life. When you die, and you will one day, unless Jesus comes before that, and I will, Christ will usher me into his amazing splendor of heaven. Right? I will see my Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face. Whether my body is cremated or buried six feet underground in that cold, dark place called death, no. Jesus is with us. Right? If you're a Christian this morning, then rejoice in him because Jesus agonized for you and for me in the Garden of Gethsemane and took our place. And pray, I plead with you, pray that God would use you to reach the lost for him. But note the warning, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. Are you willing to repent? And by his grace, accept what he came to do for you. If you have not received, there is anyone here this morning. 
where you have sat in a church for many, many times and you have not given your life to Jesus, well, today I plead with you that you will. Because Jesus endured the unimaginable spiritual agony we deserve so that we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the agony that we see of Jesus in Gethsemane. And behind this agony is grace and is love and is mercy. There is grace, there is love, and there is mercy. I don't know your heart this morning. Have you wandered away from Christ in your life? Maybe one time you were on fire for Jesus, but just gone. Maybe God is speaking to you this morning. Maybe there's someone here who has not yet given his or her life to Christ. Is God speaking to you this morning? Don't sit there then, please. Pray the prayer that God that you will repent of your sin and let Jesus come into your life and that he will forgive you and make you his child. And he will. And that is God's grace. That is his love. And that is his mercy. I'm going to pray. If there is anyone here this morning who does not know Christ, perhaps today is the day that you might want to talk to me after the service, or to John, or to one of the elders, or you might want to indicate in some way or form. We will pray for you today. Don't leave this place without knowing Jesus. Amen.